0: It's a common assumption that compulsory superannuation comes out of workers' wages. But is it true? With compulsory super set to rise from 9.5% to 12% by July 2025, it's timely to ask who is going to foot the bill? Employers or employees? And what does this mean for your future salary? I'm your host, Kat Clay, and here to discuss this issue are two Grattan experts, Household Finances Program Director, Brendan Coates, and Senior Associate, Matt Cowgill. Brendan and Matt have just released a working paper entitled, No Free Lunch, Higher Superannuation Means Lower Wages. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Kat. Thanks.
0: So, Brendan, I take it from the title that you found out this assumption is true. Super does come out of wages. What made you want to look into this?
1: Well, I think we've really uh, we've re- we've really cut to the chase straight away. Yes, the, the paper does find that super does come from wages. The reason we've decided to look into this issue is essentially because for the last twenty five thirty years, since the inception of compulsory super in Australia, it's been traditionally or it's been conventional wisdom essentially that compulsory super does ultimately come at the expense of wages. Um, that's certainly how the government set it up in its, in its inception, um, and how governments have, and politicians of both sides of politics have described it over time. Um, but that assumption is, has started to come under, th- uh, under attack essentially. It's been, it's been questioned about whether superannuation does in fact come out of wages in the past and whether future increases in super would come out of wages as well and so what we wanted to do here was really get to the bottom of okay how much of super comes from wages is it 100% is it 80% is it not at all and therefore what that means for you know the increases in compulsory super that are coming down the path.
0: So just digging into that a little bit more this assumption that super comes out of wages was even acknowledged when super was introduced in Australia Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of this argument?
1: Well, so superannuation itself, um, the the precursor to compulsory superannuation legislated by government was the Accords in 1985, when there was concerns about an inflationary wage breakout. And so in the Accord Agreement, um, which essentially was an agreement between the government and the ACTU, um, there was an agreement that um, instead of giving more money in higher wages, which could cause cause inflation, that money was instead put into superannuation accounts um, for those workers. Over time, that then turned into the compulsory superannuation guarantee that was legislated in, in I think it was 1992, um, and from there we saw superannuation rise from three percent of wages up to nine percent by 2002. And throughout this period, you know, governments were really insisting that superannuation was going to come from wages. So certainly, the original policy document, uh, Security and Retirement Planning for Tomorrow Today, in 1992, which was the the one that really set out why super. Well, the well announced that superannuation was going to be legislated as a as a compulsory thing. Said that no, no, that they, they essentially what was happening was it's about conf- deferring consumption um, from the present into the future, and no loss of remuneration is involved in meeting this national challenge. What is involved rather is foregoing a faster rate of our real take-home pay in return for a higher standard of living in retirement. So, since it's the early days, the idea has certainly been that super was going to come at the expense of wages. That was, in fact, its initial motivation. It then turned into a broader retirement income policy. And throughout that period, that's been reiterated by the Henry Tax Review in 2010, and even recently, um, recent documents that came out under a Treasury uh, Freedom of Information request uh, suggested that... Treasury thought that it's widely accepted that employees bear the cost of higher super in the form of lower take-home pay. So it's been a part of, I suppose, the way we've thought about superannuation you know, since its inception.
0: Matt, turning to you, you looked at a lot of data for this working paper from 80,000 federal enterprise agreements between 1991 and 2018. Tell us what you found.
2: Uh, that's right, Kat. So together with our colleague Will Mackey, who was a co-author on this report, we were able to get access to this really detailed data that's only uh, recently been made available to researchers by the Attorney General's Department. It contains information on every agreement, every collective agreement that's been registered in the federal industrial relations system back to 1991, as you say. So it's a it's a really rich data set, and what that means is that we're able to use that data to try to figure out all the different factors that affect uh, wages growth in, in particular enterprise agreements. So for um, you know, particular agreements, we're able to see uh, what kind of an influence um, macroeconomic factors have on wages growth. So the pace of economic growth, the unemployment rate, inflation, things like that. We take those into account, um, but also at, at the company level, you know, what industry they're in and how that industry is faring and so on. And what that means by using all this rich data and taking all this economic information into account, we're then able to compare agreements that spanned a period when super was going up and agreements that are otherwise similar that didn't include a a super increase over their life. And what we find when we do that analysis Um, is that wages growth in agreements um, that spanned an increase in compulsory super was a bit lower on average than wages growth in agreements that didn't span an increase in compulsory super. So our our finding is that over the life of an enterprise agreement, a collective agreement, 80% of the cost of increased compulsory super comes out of wages growth. So when super goes up, wages grow more slowly than they otherwise would have.
1: And I think it's worth pointing out as well that there are various ways in which the work doesn't actually capture some of the potential pass-through to workers. So it's 80% over the course of the agreement, which tends to be two to three years. Um, But there are a couple other pathways through which employers will likely pass more of the costs of um, higher compulsory super onto workers that we don't pick up. So employers can respond to the imposition of higher compulsory super by either Uh, reducing wages or reducing the pace the growth of wages which is what matt's been talking about they can do it via raising their prices so they can pass forward some of the costs into high prices now that reduces you know the real value or the purchasing power of someone's take-home pay and so we're not going to capture that channel and nor are we going to capture potentially a lot the larger long-term impacts of super on wages because for example if someone uh, if, if a super guarantee increase takes place near the end of an agreement and it's actually factored into the next one or where the employee doesn't realise super is being raised and only factors into the next one, we're not going to capture that either. So the, the impact we find is 80%. The, the likely long-term impact of super on wages is likely to be higher. More of it's going to probably be passed through in the long term than what we're finding.
2: And that's consistent as well with the research that we've looked at into similar schemes overseas um, so a range of countries have similar systems where, you know, the employer is required to make some payment on top of your wage. It might go to pensions or health insurance or something like that. And when uh, economists have studied these schemes overseas, they find that the the extent to which the cost is passed on to workers through lower wages is much bigger in the long term than, than in the short term. And it rises
0: over time. So which countries are we talking about
2: I mean, a range of countries have been studied from the United States to France to Chile, all have had, um, you know, different changes in policy that have enabled economists to study who really um, bears the cost of payments of this sort.
0: So Matt, you looked at data from um, these federal enterprise agreements, which accounts for about a third of employees. That's right. Uh, What about the other two thirds?
2: Yeah, so you're quite right that this detailed data set that I talked about earlier does only apply to federally registered enterprise agreements, which is about a third of of the workforce currently covered by those. So there's a few other ways that people can have their pay set. They can be on a, a collective agreement in the state industrial relations system, they can be paid according to an award, or they can be on what's termed an individual arrangement. And when we look through each of these, we don't find any reason to suspect that the degree of pass through from higher super to lower wages is any smaller for these other types of pay setting than it is for the the collective agreements that we have data about. So in the case of state agreements, I mean, these are really quite similar to to the the agreements we have data for. These are pretty much public sector workers for state government. And what we find in in the data set we do have is that the effect of super on wages is even a little bit bigger in the public sector than it is in the private. So certainly no reason to suspect that those state agreements have smaller pass through. Um, for a, people paid according to awards, so these are the legal minimum wages that apply in different industries and occupations. There, the, the effect of super on wages is really determined by what the Fair Work Commission does each year when, when it adjusts award wages. The commission has been very clear in the past, in 2013 and 2014 when super went up last time, that it, incre- it awards a smaller increase in wages than it would have if super hadn't gone up. So it's been very clear that there is an effect of of super on award wages. It hasn't been willing to state exactly how big that relationship is. So we certainly can't claim that it's fully passed through to award wages, um, but we think it's substantially passed through to award wages. Um, and the final category of workers is people who are, are paid on individual arrangements. This is a pretty broad category of people. that covers everyone from, from low-paid workers right through to to professionals in law firms and places like that, what we find when we look at the data is that pay for people on individual arrangements is more responsive to, to economic conditions. So changes in, um, you know, what their business, how well their business is faring. Uh, and we think that that's likely to mean that their pay is pretty responsive to changes in employer costs like superannuation as well.
0: So a lot you can take out of that research you've done uh, Brendan you've written previously on why super shouldn't rise to 12% in our report money in retirement more than enough so don't i need more money in super to help fund my super yacht passion
1: well look if you do have a super yacht passion then you probably do uh, but that would make you probably a bit of an outlier amongst most Australians and what they're looking forward to, to what they're looking forward to having in retirement you know what our previous work showed is essentially that compulsory super set at 9.5% together with the age pension and the other savings that people do accumulate over their lives, is doing its job. So most retirees today feel more financially comfortable than younger Australians that are still working and they typically have enough money to sustain the same or a higher living standing retirement than when they're working. Future retirees, so those of us that are working today, are looking like they're going to have a replacement rate that's of their pre-retirement earnings that's well above 70%, which is the standard OECD number. It's not. We don't try to replace 100% of your pre-retirement earnings because you normally don't have a mortgage anymore. There's a few expenses you no longer have. You don't have kids. Um, and these things mean that 70% is the number we sort of aim for. And our numbers suggest the average worker is going to have a replacement rate of closer to 90%. So compulsory soup is a good thing, but you can have too much of it. And so the real question is, At what point do you stop increasing compulsory super? At what point do you stop forcing people to save more for the future, reducing their current consumption, in order to have a higher living standard in the future? And we think the number of 9.5% is pretty much about right. Like, we're kind of there now. Which, incidentally, um, to go back into the history, was that's exactly what the last independent review to consider this question found. The Henry Tax Review, uh, which was commissioned by a Labor government and published in late 2009, recommended not increasing compulsory super above its then rate of 9%. Uh, the then Labor government turned around and announced within a couple of hours they were going to go to 12 um, and that set us on the course um, that where we are today, where it's going to go up, although the coalition, uh, when they were in government, de- did delay it a couple of times, which is why the timetable's been set out. So the, fir- the main reason why we don't think it should go up is because there is a trade-off between living standards while you're working and living standards in retirement. So super isn't a free lunch as the title says. Um, and that the current numbers kind of give you what you want. Secondly, super is probably not a great way of actually boosting retirement incomes for the middle because you're giving up your wages while you're working, but you don't necessarily get a much extra in the way of retirement income because the age pension claws it back because the age pension is means tested, so more super doesn't actually translate into substantially higher retirement income. And also because the pension itself is benchmarked to wages. So if wages grow more slowly, pensions for retirees today will grow more slowly than they will otherwise. And so that's going to hurt retirees or low-income retirees who are relying upon the pension. And the third reason is essentially that it actually costs the budget much more than it saves. So the pension, the super itself going to 12% will cost the budget about $2 billion a year. That's money that um, would have been taxed at full marginal rates of personal income tax. Instead, it's put into super at a 15% tax rate and that revenue gap... Is $2 billion a year today. And even in the long term, the most recent Treasury projections suggest that higher compulsory super or that super at 12%, together with past increases, won't start saving the budget money, um, more money in pension savings than the tax breaks that it's costing until about 2060. So, you know, that's when we're talking about being retired hopefully.
0: So we should almost put the tools down and step away from the super and leave it where it is at the moment?
1: That's right. So the super is doing its job. We should leave it where it is because it's achieving the objective that we've really set out.
0: The advocates for the super increase, though, maintain that even if it's come out of wages in the past, it won't this time. How do we know it will be different?
1: Well, that it won't be different in this case. Well, so many supporters of high super, Paul Keating amongst them, who was, um, was uh, essentially the, the father of compulsory super in Australia, and he's a very strong believer in the system, um, has, has amongst others said that, yes, super probably came from wages in the past, but it probably won't come from wages in the future. Um, uh, it's fair to say that wages are growing more slowly today than what they used to be. So wages growth over the last five years has averaged only 2% a year. Um, you know, and the share of national income going to workers is actually going down. So, you know, there is a case that says that workers aren't getting a great deal over the last few years. Partly that's maybe because of, of weaker bargaining power. It's a slower economy, lower productivity growth. But just because grow, wages aren't growing very quickly doesn't mean super will be a free lunch. So if, if employers don't feel pressed to give wage rises today, why would they feel pressed to absorb an increase in compulsory super? And still give you the same wage rise they would otherwise. That's a cost that they're going to incur. In fact, if workers' bargaining powers fallen, you'd probably expect more of the cost of compulsory super to be passed on to workers today than in the past. Um, and so, I think it's worth putting yourself in the shoes of the employer and saying, what would they do? If they go up, show up at the bargaining position, you know, in, through an enterprise agreement or, you know, at Grattan, you know, we 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 um, are offered the. Obviously, we have to manage our, sale, our payroll. And if, if you're going to have an extra half percent or over the next five years, two and a half percent increase in super, are you still going to give the same pay rise you otherwise would have had and just absorb the whole cost? I don't think that that's what's going to happen. It's certainly not what our data shows. So our data shows that when super has gone up, wages grew by less. And I think that's what's happened in the past. And there's really no reason to think it won't happen in the future.
0: So, Brendan, wrapping up, you're not anti-super, but would you like to reform the entire system or just leave it as it is?
1: Look, we're certainly not anti-super. We think the super's doing its job. Um, I think that has been, I think, one way in which people who would like to see high compulsory super have sought to portray us. Um, the super industry at times amongst others, and they certainly have both a strong ideological and per- and financial interest in super going up because it does mean – more money going into the system. There is more fees, um, fee revenue coming off the top, and I think one of the challenges in Australia is that Super has come to dominate the conversation about retirement income policy, whereas the other parts of the system, like the Age Pension, other people's other savings, housing, have become less have have been um, we've put less emphasis on the, on those things. And super's being asked to do things that it's probably not well set up to do. So if we're worried about poverty, super is not the answer. The age pension is really there to do that. So we've written a lot about why super shouldn't rise. And there are other things you might want to do in the system. The big ones are, you know, the age pension means test is a little bit too draconian at the moment. You know, if you put a dollar in, you don't really get much more than a dollar out at the end. You may even get less. Um, And rent assistance is really, really inadequate. And so if you look at who is struggling in retirement today, those that own their own home as pensioners are actually doing pretty well. They're not doing exceptionally well, but they're not under high rates of financial stress compared to other cohorts and the cohort that really struggles. If you don't own your own home as as a retiree, you are at much higher risk of financial stress and poverty than anyone else.
0: Uh, Thank you, Brendan and Matt. At the heart of this complex issue, really is a heart for looking after people in their old age. And also us as workers, this issue affects all of us who are employed in some way. If you'd like to read the working paper we've been talking about or any of our past reports, visit our website at grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this Grattan podcast, hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening.